0: Throughout history, the church has suffered persecution and distress and tribulation, being put to death and driven to the slaughter. And also, Guido de Bray, who wrote the Belgic Confession at the time of writing, the church was being severely persecuted. He was ministering to the members of the congregation only at night. You could see also in the introduction to the Belgic Confession, they speak of having their backs uh, being given to, to stripes, to whips, their tongues to knives, their mouths to gags, and their whole bodies to fire. And In that context, we read the confession of the church uh, that was written in that context about the providence of God. It's the same truth today. It's one thing to say it when we sit in our comfortable pews and think about it as uh, something that we have to get our minds around, and this is... It's good to, as we read Article 13 together, to to think about that context in which it was written. The Providence of God, Article 13, it's on page 503 in the Book of Praise. We believe that this good God, after he had created all things, did not abandon them or give them up to fortune or chance, but that according to his holy will he so rules and governs them that in this world nothing happens without his direction. Yet God is not the author of the sins which are committed, nor can he be charged with them. For his power and goodness are so great and beyond understanding that he ordains and executes his work in the most excellent and just manner, even when devils and wicked men act unjustly. And as to his actions surpassing human understanding, we will not curiously inquire farther than our capacity allows us. But with the greatest humility and reverence, we adore the just judgments of God, which are hidden from us, and we content ourselves that we are pupils of Christ, who have only to learn those things which he teaches us in his word, without transgressing these limits. This doctrine gives us inexpressible consolation, for we learn thereby that nothing can happen to us by chance but only by the direction of our gracious Heavenly Father. He watches over us with fatherly care, keeping all creatures so under his power that not one hair of our head, for they are all numbered, nor one sparrow can fall to the ground without the will of our Father. Matthew 10, verses 29 to 30. In this we trust because we know that he holds in check the devil and all our enemies, so that they cannot hurt us without his permission and will. We therefore reject the damnable error of the Epicureans, who say that God does not concern himself with anything, but leaves all things to chance. Beloved Church of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, our God is very holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He is eternal, infinite, almighty, transcendent, and completely set apart from the world that he created. The discussion that Job had with his friends, it ends with the simple conclusion that we also sing in Psalm 115, that we sang in Psalm 135, that God does what he pleases. Our experiences and our reasoning as creatures on earth are not sufficient to allow us to comprehend the fullness of His glorious majesty. We can only learn about God from what He has revealed to us. When we see what appear to be two contradictory statements about God in the Scriptures, we act in humble faith and acknowledge that every statement of Scripture is true. Both are true. Because God is true and He is holy. God does not justify Himself to us and we do not need to justify God to anyone. He is holy. Like the seraphim in Isaiah 6, verse 2, who stood in the presence of the holy God yet covered their eyes in humble recognition of their limitations, we too recognize that God's glory far surpasses our own understanding. And we we sang that in hymn 5, Stanza three. Well, when we think about God's providence, we reach the limits of our understanding. At the same time, we confess that there are things that we can know and we can cling to for comfort. God accommodates himself to us so that we may have all that we need to worship him rightly as finite creatures. In our confession in Article 13, the Church repeats everything that God has said in His Word, even though we might be incapable of combining everything together in a way that satisfies every aspect of our finite, created, and fallen and curious minds. Although we cannot understand everything, there is a lot to say, and I preach to you the gospel of God's providence under this theme The Lord is actively involved in the direction of all things. We'll see that He carries out His plan. He dealt with evil and He watches over us. How do you explain your existence and the purpose of your life? It's a question of worldview. What's your view of the world? That's a great question to ask people that you meet along the way gives you a sense of all the different worldviews that are, are out there, and also it gives you some conviction in terms of how you see the world. And you might ask someone, well, how do you see the world? How do you explain your existence? Why are you on this earth? If you think there is a, a God or a divine power, what is he like? Is he to be compared to a clockmaker that put the clock together, wound it up and is now now is just letting it run on its own according to the settings that he established in the machine is our only purpose in this life to run out our tick-tocking time in subjection to cold arbitrary laws of nature did epicurus the greek philosopher referred to in article 13 who lived around 300 before christ was born did he get it right when he advised the world to seek pleasure and self-satisfaction, avoid trouble and unrest, dead is dead, and if there are any gods, they do not concern themselves with life here on earth. Is nature the God we must worship? And is our task simply to responsibly manipulate her nature's powers so that we and our neighbors can find the most comfort and pleasure possible? Are we nothing more than slaves to our destiny written in the stars? Are we nothing more than toys in the capricious hands of a, nameless, or of a power named chance? And our life is simply a process of hoping that it won't be all that bad as we cooperate with one another to try and make it as, as good as possible? Is our existence really just senseless and useless as a theme, a philosophy of many of the singers in the last few decades? Or perhaps are most religions in the world correct when they speak of the possibility of a divine providence? They mean provision. And they, they promise... These religions promise happiness when you follow their rules and laws, but unhappiness when you don't. So the power to change our situation lies entirely in our own hands. Is that what this life is all about? Well, thankfully, the Bible tells us that not one of these expectations or descriptions of life is correct. We confess that the creation of all things was just the beginning of God's work. Although he stopped his creating work after he had finished on the sixth day, he did not stop working in the universe. John 5 verse 17. He remains sovereign God and he remains good. Although God does allow people to experience randomness, there is no power such as chance that can actively determine your fate. After making the world, God remains actively involved in the world. His hands are holding the world up. We confess that He sustains and governs the world according to His eternal providence and His infinite power. He sustains all things, and that means that every creature looks to the Lord for breath and food and life and everything else. the boundaries of his dwelling place, the allotted periods of his life. You read about that in Psalm 104 and Acts 14 and Acts 17. When we speak of God governing all things, this means that all creatures are under His power. and we are able to see His will by the events that take place in the world. He's, he's governing. A blade of grass sticks its head through the ground under the command of God. A leaf leaf falls from the tree under the command of God. A nasty virus is formed and transmitted under the direction of His fatherly hand. Ephesians 1 verse 11 says that the Lord works all things, all things, all things according to the counsel of his will. The Lord is both the architect who has designed and drawn His plan beforehand as we read in Ephesians 1, and the engineer and the builder who is carrying it out. We cannot, as humans, we cannot always see the, the big picture that God sees. We cannot see the big picture that God ordains and executes as we confess, but we can be sure that every experience we have in this life fits into that big picture, into the plan that He has in His hands. and in God's eternal plan and within His sovereign control, there is also human responsibility. Even though it's clear that God's plan never depends on the abilities of His creatures, God's sovereignty doesn't take away from human responsibility. The word cooperation that is sometimes used to explain God's providence. It may give the wrong impression about the preeminence and the primacy of God. But we do believe that in his government, the Lord may use instruments or secondary causes to fulfill his purposes. We see some of this human responsibility embedded right in creation already before the fall. When God created human beings and all creatures and he created them all good, he created all creatures willing and able to do his will. He didn't create rebels, but he did create real living beings with the responsibility to remain in his love and continue to glorify him. This is the role that this explains the tree in the garden called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God put the tree there, he also gave a warning that they must not eat of the tree, for in the day that they eat of it, they would surely die. In order that the human beings he created could love the Lord with a sincere and a voluntary choice, The Lord gave the opportunity to these human beings to refuse His grace, to show the sincerity of their love, their voluntary willingness to to walk with the Lord in true friendship and fellowship. He didn't coerce them. He set them on the right way. But He gave also that tree the knowledge of good and evil. The tree reveals the promise of God's anger against sin and the punishment that necessarily flows from his holy nature already before Adam and Eve fell into sin. see, God is to be praised and glorified also in his holy anger against sin, which belonged to his very nature even before the fall into sin. And then the warning that God issued makes it clear that didn't, God didn't set people on a, on a crossroad of two equally attractive paths to see what they would do, but he placed them on the right way and then equipped them to love and trust and obey him. James makes it clear that this was not a temptation, for God tempts no one. In spite of all this, sadly, Adam and Eve chose not to love God with all their hearts, and the promised curse upon all creation that is a part also of, of the holiness of God that came to being, It was laid upon the whole human race and the whole world. Although Scripture shows a clear understanding of human misery, we, we can talk about the origins of, of the fall and in, of our own misery the Scriptures also make it clear that this misery came as from the human beings who chose sin. And so God, who made everything good, is, as we confess, not the author of the sins which are committed, nor can He be charged with them. In fact, when God saw that sin had entered the world he immediately promised that a descendant of Eve would crush the serpent and bring his people back to life in fellowship with him. It's so clearly explained in Romans 5. We'll see this in our second point, that God dealt with evil. And so there's evil in the world. You know that. God knows that. The Scriptures show a clear understanding of that. We sang about that in Psalm 42. People look at you, they say, where is is your God? You can divide this evil into two categories. The evil of sin and the evil of suffering. The evil of sin and the evil of suffering. And the evil of suffering is usually the most central in our minds and our apologetics, our defense of the faith. The, The effects of the fall, such as brain injuries and mental disorders and cancer, and degenerating health. They consume our attention and our eyes fill with tears as we think of that, as we think of all those who have seen the evil of war and gas chambers and rape and infanticide and abuse. Fallen angels, sinful natures, degeneration, decay, misery. They fill our world. And sometimes we have difficulty understanding how a good God could include this evil in his plan. Imitating a briefly famous defiant child activist before the experts and rulers of the world, we feel the urge sometimes to shake our fist at God and say to him, How could you? People feel this urge. How could it be a a part of your plan to have some angels fall? And although we believe that you hold them in check, how could it be your will that you give them permission to hurt me? Why must I suffer so much from the consequences of the fall? What kind of God lets these things happen? What kind of God indeed? Let's think about that. That's the gospel I proclaim to you today. He is the holy God who dealt with the root problem of evil which is sin. And he dealt with that through his son. Though evil of suffering is horrible, the evil of sin is first and worst, Is the first and worst evil of all. The thought to shake your fist at the almighty, holy, gracious God who made everything good. The sin is the evil that brought death into the world as its wages. The only way to deal with the evil of suffering is to first deal with the evil of sin. The way you can see that our suffering is not the suffering of the innocent. We, will, we still see these selfish desires in our hearts that have been there since we were children. God's holiness had to be, His holy justice had to be satisfied and that could only be done with that punishment of eternal death. As God is active in blessing, so he is active in punishing. And that punish, punishment isn't just fending for ourselves without God, but mankind under the cursed is, is suffering and experiencing guilt and suffering and death and attacks of the prince of demons under his hand, in God's hand. The gospel message is that though angels sinned against God, and instigated mankind to bring sin and death into the world when, when devils and wicked men act unjustly. And we as human beings, sinners and rebels ourselves could, could do nothing to escape our punishment. God himself came down to deal with the problem, the evil of sin. And as you think about these difficult questions, we're, we're again reminded to see the holiness of God first. Then, look at what that most holy God did so that you who believe in Jesus Christ would not be punished for your sins. Do you see how he satisfied his justice by punishing his son on the cross so that his son might die for the ungodly as we read in Romans 5 verse 6. You see His holiness and His justice being satisfied as He poured out that wrath upon His Son. The cross and the resurrection demonstrate what our God, our Father, has done about evil. And so before we start asking questions about how God's will could permit the gas chambers in Germany we need to see Gethsemane and Golgotha and the son of God and the agony of hell for us and in our place only when we see that are we in a, a position to approach God with the proper spirit to to ask our questions you see, the in, incomprehensible thing is not the evil from which we suffer, but the grace and the patience of God towards those who sinned against His most high majesty. And in Christ Jesus, we see the depth of God's love manifest for the world to see. You can have the, the picture of the hands holding the world Everything is in His control. You also see the the hands offering the Son on the cross for all the world to see, all the world to gather beneath, all the world to be saved through Christ, through faith in Christ. Even when devils and wicked men act unjustly, God's power and His goodness are so great and so beyond understanding that he ordains and executes in his work in his work in the most excellent and just manner. This is the holy God we serve, who always loves us very deeply. And we can be certain that no matter what we are suffering as his children, he loves us in his son. And then we see the greatest cause of doubt and questions and, and fist shaking, the greatest cause of doubt in the existence of God is not the fact that there is evil in the world, but the fact that people do not know the Lord. People have a tendency to create images, idols, of what a God should look like in in their own little minds. And then they decide that since the God who revealed Himself in Scripture doesn't fit their limited understanding, that He must not exist. But when we look at the cross, and you reflect on on the Trinity, and the two natures of Jesus Christ hanging on the cross for sinners and the responsibility of man 100%, and and the sovereignty of God 100%, and the providence of the Lord. And all this being revealed so that we might know that we are saved from the evil of sin in this life, and the evil of suffering when Christ returns. Then we can start asking right questions. God is sovereign so we know that the evil things that happen in the world are not outside his permission and will. And that's not easy for us to understand. There's a theologian well known to many of us, John Calvin, he quotes another theologian who's very well known from about 400 A.D. named Augustine. And he quotes him to try and explain it. And he says a very beautiful sentence. Even what happens against God's will in a wonderful and unspeakable manner does not occur without His will. God is holy. We cannot understand everything. God is also good so that we know that He is not the author of evil but exactly the opposite. He is evil's greatest enemy. And through the work of his Son, he snatches every repentant sinner from evil snare. He removes the sting of death, which is sin, and he carries us gently in his hands through life, still under the effects of the fall, until Christ returns again in glory. The church calls this an inexpressible consolation. The church suffering attacks calls this an inexpressible consolation. Consolation. He watches over us. As a result of the fall into sin, the entire creation is is groaning under the curse. That's that's what we're seeing when we're weeping. And all creatures are, are suffering from evil things happening in their lives. And we don't understand how it all works. And yet we are so happy to know that God is present even in the midst of evil. For although God may permit the devils and wicked men to act unjustly, he holds them in check so they cannot surpass the limits of his will. We just think of the, the first chapters of Job to, to have that picture. The God who punishes sin against his most high majesty with temporal and eternal punishments is the same God who also provided a substitute sacrifice in our place that was His own Son so that we do not need to live a second under His wrath. In fact, we don't. The God who sent His own Son to die on a cross and to free me from evil eternally, well, that's the same God who sends a virus to humble me, a war to teach me, and a death to make me apply it to my life for real. The God who did not stop a violent person from emptying my soul, emptying me, or did not stop an addiction from crushing me, he also dwells in me in that same heart by his Holy Spirit to fill me with his presence. Nothing happens by chance. God is actively involved in everything. My loving God is actively involved in everything. Our gracious God has everything in His hands. All things are being directed by the Lord. And once we are content pupils of Christ, as we confess in Article 13, the Spirit gives us a desire to truly understand the, the beauty of the Lord we are gazing at. I am thankful that there are things that are hidden from us, that God's glory surpasses our human understanding and capacity for it confirms the awesome majesty and the holiness of my God and and confirms that call to, to trust in Him. Just trust in Him. Him who sent His Son. And this holy creator of heaven and earth who sustains and governs everything in heaven and on earth and whom I cannot even begin to comprehend fully, he is the one that I know is watching over us, the church, with his fatherly care and love. The content pupils of Christ will immediately recognize what a great consolation this is for them. It's a great motivation for us to to always be praying for healing, for for strength, for, for guidance, for endurance for another difficult day. We pray for the Lord who is living and actively involved in everything to help us in the darkness, to take us out of that pit that we cannot climb out of ourselves. And we think about it. It's true that the Lord has thought it wise to bring you to this place of suffering if you're in a place of suffering. It's true that in His love He may think it wise for you to stay there longer. But God is not a cold, hard law or force from whom we can expect no change in our lives. He's a father living in a relationship with his children. He is personal. He understands the suffering of his dear children on the earth. He hates the evil things that happen, the evil things that are being done in the earth. He dwells right within us. He understands us better than we can understand ourselves. We we confess that not one hair of our head, for they are all numbered, or one sparrow can fall to the ground without the will of our Father. Not one of us knows the number of hairs on his head or notices even if one of them falls out as they're running along. But the Father in heaven does. And so... We live with that hope which is that certain expectation of God's love today and tomorrow and forever. And we can hope and live in that expectation that God grants relief from the suffering that seems more than we can handle. For He is loving and powerful. Sometimes that relief doesn't come even in this lifetime. But in Christ We know that we're set free from all evil. We can trust that he gives us what we need. The God we worship is very holy. He is very loving. He does not abandon the work of his hands. Amen.